Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 15. We'll go just three verses today. I'm a little off on my Colossians schedule, and hopefully we'll be able to make that up towards the end of the book. But we'll do these three verses today, just because when I write, I try to give myself a page limit uh, and, and kind of take the sections as they come. And this sermon, these three verses are very nice together in giving us a message that I'm calling today, All for Jesus. All for Jesus. One of my favorite Buck Owens songs is called Love's Gonna Live Here Again. Raise your hand if you've ever heard Love's Gonna Live Here Again. Well, that's more people than I thought it would be, actually. These guys know it. Love's gonna live here. Yeah, y'all know that song. All right. Well, we don't really know what that song means. Have you ever thought about that song? It doesn't say a lot, except it says love's gonna live here a lot. But Buck says, the sun's gonna shine in my life once more. Things are going to be the way they were before. He says, I hear bells are ringing. I hear birds are singing. I hear bees are humming. And I know the days are coming when love's going to live here again. No more loneliness, only happiness. Love's going to live here again. What does that song mean? Is it a song of reconciliation between a husband and a wife? Is it about a widower or a widow who's found new love? Is it about a child being born? We just don't know. That's kind of the things about music is you kind of put your own meaning to it. But maybe the fact that the song is so simple is the genius of the song. It's one of the happiest songs you'll ever hear. It's a song of exuberant hope. And when Don Rich put his harmony part and his lead guitar down there in Bakersfield, California, and they released the song in August of 1963, that song spent 16 weeks as number one on the country charts. And it held that record for 49 years. And then Rascal Flats knocked them off. That's such a weird thing. That song was on the country music charts for 30 weeks. And people loved that song. And it's got a great idea. What a great idea is it for us to think of love living in someone's heart and in their life. Love overcoming loneliness. What a great idea of a broken relationship being restored. Where there had been war, there is now peace and love, and things are going to be the way they were before. Last week, I asked you the question, are you growing in Christ? The week before, I asked you, are you seeking the things above, or are you settling for the things below? And this week, in verses 15 through 17, I'm asking you this question. What lives here? What lives here? The letters of Paul usually follow a very easy structure to understand. The letters of Paul have a two-part structure. First, he gives you theology, then he gives you application. A lot of our sermons are that way. We exegete the text, and then we apply the text. Since you've, or if you've been here, during the weeks, we began to preach in Colossians in August. We started in the first verse and in the first chapter. And we learned that Paul wrote this letter to a little church in a little town, a relatively unimportant city in Asia Minor. Colossae is considered, I guess, to be so unimportant, no one's ever dug it up to see what it was like. 
We don't really know what the Colossians were like because no one's ever excavated their town. We don't know if there was a synagogue there. We don't know what the people were like. We don't know what they worshipped or what they did because even though the, the mound, uh, the tell or whatever they call it is there, it's not even been considered important enough to history to go excavate the city. And yet here was a church in this relatively unimportant place in Asia Minor, uh, and there was a newly planted church there. And this newly planted church was being overrun by false teachers. And they were trying to lead the people astray. They were either asking them to mix their faith in Jesus with Greek thought and Greek religion, or they were asking them to mix their Christian faith with the Jewish religion. And Paul came in, and he addressed the problem. And he didn't say, here's why these guys are wrong, and here's why these guys are wrong. He said, here's who Jesus is. Here is what Jesus has done for believers. And then he turns the corner in Acts cha- uh, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and he says, Just as you received Christ, so walk in him. And then we begin for the rest of the book, even though there's still some theology mixed in, we begin a very practical part of the book where Paul tells us practically how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, being a Christian is not something you did in vacation Bible school. Being a Christian is not something that you did one night at a revival when you were a teenager. Being a Christian is something you are. Following Jesus every single day. Being a follower of Jesus is the life and the essence of a Christian disciple. It's not something that happened in the past. If you're saying, yes, I got religion way back then, you don't understand Christianity. If you think it's something that happened at one point and you took care of that and you got that done so you're good now, you've never known Jesus Christ. And worse, he's never known you. Being a believer in Jesus Christ is continually... It's an everyday taking up of the cross of Jesus Christ and pursuing and growing and surrendering. And that's what Paul has been telling these Colossians. Keep going after Christ. All that you're looking for to be satisfied in life, all of that fullness can be found in the one who is the fullness, who is Jesus Christ. So the question is, what lives here? Does Christ live here? The kids have a slang term that they use. And what I love to do is I love to learn the words that they're using. And I have ways of finding out. I know where to find it online. And then I use words that they, that they use that they think old people shouldn't use. And you should see how fast their heads turn when I use one of their terms. Where did you hear that? You know, that's, that's what they want to know. But one of the terms that they use, if there's somebody that's messing with their mind or somebody that's bothering them, as they say, that person's, you're letting that person live rent-free in your head. They talk about letting people live rent-free in their mind. Right? Yeah, okay, maybe. They're like, that's like three years ago. Uh, but maybe it's, a, maybe it's a player on the opposing basketball or football team, or maybe your opponent in a debate. Or your rival, maybe just your rival who's competing with you for the affections of a, a girl or boy. They're, they're, they're in your mind, they're in your head, and they'll say, stop letting that person live rent-free in your mind. Stop letting them live rent-free. And here's the truth. When we talk about what's going to live here, 
The truth is, something's going to live in our heart, isn't it? I remember a few years ago, we had Richard Ross who came. And remember, he came and he was talking about parenting. And he, and he held up a piece of plastic pipe. Y'all remember this? He held up that piece of pipe to his heart. And he said, this, this, our heart's like a vacuum cleaner. It's just looking for something to attach to. It's just looking for something that'll fill it up. That's the way our hearts are. Something's gonna, we're going to let something live here. And a lot of times we let things live here rent-free, don't we? Things that have no business living inside of our hearts. And whenever something else is living here, there's no room for the rightful tenant. Who is the owner of this home? My heart is Christ's home. He's the one who built it. He's the one who created it. He's the one who owned it. He's the one who purchased it twice. He should be the one living here. Why are we letting people live rent-free? There was a man named Gurumrit Hanspell, and he became the most famous rent-free squatter in the history of the United States. Mr. Hanspell moved into a home in Long Island in 1998, and he made one mortgage payment for $1,600. Then he defaulted on his loan. The bank foreclosed. And yet somehow, Mr. Hanspell managed to live in that house for 23 years rent-free until 2021 when he was finally evicted. He became America's most famous squatter. Somehow, he survived four lawsuits. He filed bankruptcy seven times, and then he used COVID to hang on for one more year. What does that illustration teach us? I think in Mr. Hanspell's case, in the bank's case, and in our heart's case, sometimes it's hard to get that rent-free squatter out of there. And we struggle for years and years with the sins that beset us and keep us from allowing Christ to live here. Our text this morning, the point of this text, is to help us know and understand how we can kick out the squatters. How we can kick out those things that take up residence in our lives and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and let the word of Christ richly dwell in us so that we can live a life for Jesus with thankfulness. That's the sermon in a sentence. How can we let the peace of Christ rule in our heart and the word of Christ richly dwell in us so that we might live for Jesus with thankfulness? Number one, Colossians chapter three, verse 15. We are commanded... To let the peace of Christ rule in our heart. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful. This command is a command to individuals for sure. Each of us is commanded here to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And yet it's also a corporate command, isn't it? It's, it's, it's to those who were called in one body. What, why, why do we have this here? You know, always, I, y'all know I find it humorous that we have our Lord's Supper table and we put like the Shroud of Turin over it. But what, what is, like there's a little pomp and circumstance to it, but what's the point? What's it teaching us? And we all come from one loaf. We're, 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 we, are, we are one in Christ. And we receive Christ as we receive these elements. And how do we do this? Together. Together. That's the Lord's Supper. The purpose of the Supper is that we all come together. The power and the force of the Supper and the force of the church is the fact that we do this together with one heart. If we are allowing the peace of Christ 
to rule our hearts as the First Baptist Church of Olney. Think of the impact we will have not just in Olney, but in Texas and in the rest of the world. There's great power whenever people are surrendered to the peace and the rule of Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches us things, doesn't it? Have you thought of the gospel today? I hope in Sunday school you thought of the gospel. I hope that this week you've reflected on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of taking up my cross and following Jesus is to remind me what that cross is all about. The gospel teaches us that there was a great conflict between us and our creator. We sinned. We rebelled. We rejected the rightful rule and reign of our creator. And we were bound because of our sin and our rebellion and the fact that we were traitors. We were bound for judgment and destruction in hell. But Christ waged a great war to defeat sin and death on our behalf, and we didn't even know we needed that. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, While we were still sinners, while we were still weak, at just the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still out there sinning blindly, Christ was dying for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can remember one of my favorite classes at Howard Payne. I think it was the spring of my freshman year. And I went to Dr. Mangrum's class and I had signed up for U.S. history from Reconstruction to the Modern Age. And Dr. Mangrum started the class. He came in, and he was looking at his notes, and he looked at his watch, and it was time to start the class. And he looked it up, and here's what he said. He looked up at this class full of uh, young people that probably weren't that interested in history, and here's what he said. The war is over. The war is over. Of course, he was talking about the Civil War and how we were going to move on from that, what peace was going to look like, in our country now that the war was over. When you come to Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the war is over. When you surrender to Jesus Christ, the war with God is over. You will still battle with sin, but the war is won. There is a peace that the Christian understands. There is a peace that the Christian knows It only comes from Christ, and there's nothing else like it anywhere. There's nothing like knowing peace with Jesus Christ. When you are at that lowest moment, when you feel defeated in your sin, you remember the cross. You remember what Christ has done, and you remember that God wants to forgive you, and he loves you more than you even wanted to sin. That's the kind of God that's pursued you. That's the kind of God that's won the peace that you weren't able to win. Fight your sin. But remember that your salvation has never been dependent upon you. The peace with God is always completely, utterly reliant on Jesus Christ and his work. And when I stop and remember that, even in my lowest moment, that peace of Christ comes over. When I remember what Jesus has done, it turns my heart toward him. There's nothing like it. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. He said this to his disciples on the last night of his life. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. It's a peace that you can't 
the world can't duplicate it. This is a peace that only comes from Christ. And when he tells them, I'm giving you my peace, he says, so don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. The word here for rule is the same as the activity that a referee does in an athletic contest. A lot of us like to watch college football on Saturdays, and we see those guys out there in the zebra stripes. And we'll see them after they throw a flag, and they all gather together in the middle of the field, and they have a conference. What are they talking about? Are they talking about what they want for supper? They're talking about one thing when they gather together. They're talking about the rules. They're talking about the rule book. These guys know the rule book. That's why they're selected to referee and to rule over the athletic contest. And they are making their decisions not based upon how they feel, but they are making their decisions based on the rules. We are called to let that peace which Christ has made, we are to allow the good news of the gospel, when we think of what we know of what God has done for us, we're to let that be the decider. The decider of what? How you think and how you act and how you talk and how you live your life. Is the peace of Christ the decider for how you think and act? Are you governed by the peace of Christ? Stop and think. Everyone just think of your life. Think of your life. Just focus for a minute. What would your life look, or Chad, what would your life look like if the peace of Christ which is the fruit of the gospel. It's what Christ gives to us because of what he's done. What if that was the basis for my choices, my actions, my speech, my attitude? Think of the thoughts and the fears and the emotions and the anger and the insecurity and the jealousy and the pride that live rent-free up here and live rent-free here. What would the peace of Christ be every single day to those things? It'd be like walking up and just nailing an eviction notice to the door every single day. You can't live here. You guys have to go. And then he adds there at the very end of verse 15 to be thankful. You'll notice that in all three verses, in 15, 16, and 17, gratitude is mentioned. Gratitude towards what God has done is in view. That other stuff has to move out. Christ is going to live here. That's how we experience the fullness in Christ that Paul mentions in this book in chapter 2, verse 10. We want to be full of Jesus. And when we are filled with Christ, the other stuff is pushed out. Gratitude's a big thing, isn't it? It's interesting that these verses mention gratitude. People tell you these days, have an attitude of gratitude. But how do you do that? How do you just be thankful? You know, thankfulness has to be aimed somewhere. Do do y'all just say thank you to the great nothingness? I mean, who, who are they talking to when you say thank you? You've got to be thankful to somebody. You can't be just thankful to nothing. Who is the you in thank you? For a believer, the thankfulness has the effect of aiming our hearts towards our Savior and saying, thank you, Jesus. Thankfulness is important to the believer because it, it sets our hearts on the object of our faith. I've got Christ here. What draws my heart towards Christ? Remembering what he's done for me and saying, thank you, Lord. It's hard to live that way. And so I was thinking about this. I need to be, 
I need to be filled with Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ. And then I made up the corniest thing that I've ever said in a sermon. And I wrote, I said, Melissa, is this too corny? And she said, yes, it's too corny. But a thankful believer is a tankful believer. That's really bad, I know. I'm sorry, I apologize. (laughs) All right, thank you, okay. Those were called pity claps. Uh, Babe, it's true, isn't it? Isn't it? If I, if, I am, if my tank is full of Christ, if my heart's full of Christ, I'm going to be a thankful person. Okay, So I know it's a corny thing to say, a thankful believer is a thankful believer, or a, or a thankful believer is a tankful believer, but you get the idea. Because what's living here? What's, what's ruling here? The peace of Christ. Now look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ, so we've got the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with, again, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Have you noticed in these last couple of years when you go to Hobby Lobby, how many of y'all love going to Hobby Lobby? See this, this is, And then how many don't like to ever go in there? Okay, see, that's weird, isn't it? It's kind of like Best Buy. I bet it would be totally opposite. The people that don't like Hobby Lobby, like, I want to go look at the phones, Right? Probably, probably the opposite. I don't know. Scott's shaking his head. What's your favorite store, Scott? He's like, I don't want to go to a store. Okay, that's, that's fine. I like to go to Hobby Lobby and look at all the pretty stuff. And, and I love it when they got 50% off. They do that a lot. But have you noticed that Hobby Lobby, this last couple of years, the things everybody's putting on the walls at, at their house, it's words. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I think in the past... If you were going to go buy a picture, you'd get like a picture of something, like a picture uh, I've seen at Hobby Lobby. Strangely, there's like pictures of cows, uh, pictures of flowers, you know, pictures of boats, like the classic stuff that you, that you would think of. But now what are people putting on their walls? Word art. How many of y'all have some word art at your house? Okay, that's nearly everybody. Now, here's another thing I've noticed about all the word art. A lot of it is Scripture. A lot of it is people taking a, a, a scripture verse and the script is very pretty and they put it on some boards and they put a frame around it and, they, and we put it on the wall. But does it do any good to hang up a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord if we don't hang it up in here too? I mean, the great thing about putting those signs up in your house is it should remind you to put it here too, <clears throat> to have it ever before us. So how do we get there? Because it's great, I can, I can spend a lot of money and, and I can hang up signs in my house. But how do I get that word dwelling in here richly? Isn't that interesting? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? The Greek word is plusios. And it means much in abundance. Like when you try a, a cupcake and it's got really sweet icing. And the icing feels like it's almost just all sugar. And what do you say when you taste that? Ooh, you, that's rich. <laughs> because there's an abundance of sugar there. It's overwhelming how much sugar is in that icing on that cupcake. Well, we need God's word to dwell, us, dwell in us richly that same way. Or when someone is around us, they say, gosh, there's a lot of Jesus in there. That sure is sweet. 
The word of Christ dwelling richly in us. What is the word of Christ? That's what God has revealed to us in his son, in his word, the Bible, and it's living in here. How does it happen? Well, he gives us three ways to get that word. So I want to get that word that's hanging on the wall in my kitchen that talks about this is a house full of grace and love, and it's actually there in our kitchen. I noticed it just the other day. I don't know. I guess I've seen it before. <laughs> it was like a really convicting, but, I've, but I have never looked at the picture in our kitchen and been convicted by it until I was writing this sermon, and I thought, there it is right there. That's a grace-filled life just right there on the wall of the kitchen, but it's on the wall of my heart. Well, how do I get it there? Three ways. Number one, what does he say to do? Teach. Why we come in here and listen to me teaching? Why do you go to Sunday school? Why is so much of what we do in the Christian life teaching people? Because it's right here in the Bible. It says it's what we're supposed to be doing. If we want to get that word in the heart, what do we do? We teach it. Don't look at having to come and learn as a burden. It's a blessing. Aren't you... Imagine all the people who lived for all those years and they didn't have a Bible. You have an opportunity. Can we, can, can, I mean, isn't it amazing that we can actually sit down and have God speak to us through his word and we have a blasé attitude about it and sometimes we don't even show up. But if we'll remember what's happening here, we can teach each other. We have been given gifts that we might teach each other the word of God. That's a positive thing. And then there's sort of a, a, a word with a negative connotation, admonishing. So teaching is like, do this, and admonishing is, whoa, watch out for that. I'm warning you, that could be dangerous. I need that. I'm thankful for those people that will have me be aware of the sins in my life, the things that might be creeping in that are causing my heart to go astray. Be warned, Chad. Be aware. Stay away from this. Those stay in my mind. They convict me. The Holy Spirit uses those things. So teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. What is wisdom? Says in Proverbs 1, says in Proverbs 9, chapter 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means when I fear the Lord, I have a reverence for his authority. And I have a reverence in organizing and, and uh, I'm ordering my life around the instruction of God. Proverbs 1 says, the one who despises that kind of instruction that we're seeing here in Colossians chapter 3 is a fool. So the opposite of the fear of the Lord is one who rejects or despises instruction. How teachable are you? Do you come to church to see if you agree with me and you see if I'm right because you know you're right? Or are you teachable? Do you allow the Holy Spirit to convict your heart and you say, that guy up there is a bozo and he's, he's just as bad as I am? True. <clears throat> that is not a lie. But I'm not up here in my authority. That's why I preach out of the Bible. It's because I don't have anything to say to you that I have a thousand percent confidence in. But I know the word of God is 100% trustworthy. Or a thousand percent. I guess I should use the same number. You can trust God's word. You can take it to the bank every single time. And so it's telling us here, get that word in the heart. Listen to the teaching. And be a teacher. Allow yourself to be admonished, and, and have enough love for people to warn them and, and love them to say, hey, I'm worried about you. And then finally he says in verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A couple of years ago we were at a conference, and there was a seminary from St. Louis, and they were handing out a T-shirt. It didn't even say the name of the seminary, which I kind of loved that. 
they were handing out a shirt that wasn't really doing them any good. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like a really good piece of swag because I had to look up what the seminary was that gave me the shirt to see if I could get more of them. And here's what the shirt said. All for Christ. All for Christ. It had a cross on it. All for Christ. And I love to wear that. You've probably seen me wearing that shirt. I try to wear it every Friday. And it helps me to remember whatever I do, Whether in word or deed, people are watching, and whatever I do, do everything in the name, in the character, in the personality of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do it all in his name. Is your life devoted to promoting the name and the character of Jesus? Is your life devoted to proclaiming the greatness of Christ? Or is your concern with your name? So what's going to live here? Buck Owens wrote a nice song, and he said, love's going to live here. But maybe you're sitting there today, and you're saying, well, what lives here now is my fear and my pride and my pleasure, and, and myself is really living here. But here's the answer the Bible would give us. Will we answer the call? Will you trust the Lord? If you're far away from God, will you come to Jesus and he says, if, he, if, he, if he's knocking at the door, if you'll open it up, he'll come in. The Bible says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's an invitation. And Christ is calling, come to me. That you might say, for the rest of my life, Christ is going to live here. I in him, and he in me.